listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Dang, it's cold as shit in here. Hey, Chris, don't sweat it. Just a minor thermostat issue. I got my HVAC guy on the way. I can't sweat it, bro. It's damn near freezing in here. Well, listen, get ready because I got some of that liquid heat for you. It's called the chainsaw. You put one and a half ounce of chilled tequila, two drops of Tabasco, one splash of lime juice, and one splash of lemon lime mix into a cocktail shaker with ice. Shake it up and pour it all into a shot glass. Finally, throw just one little pinch of black pepper. Salute. Hey, how you doing, Val? I'm Frank with HVAC Attack. I'm here to fix your heater. Hey, uh, Chris, uh, I'll be back. Gotta let the guys into the side door. But don't leave just yet. I'll see you next round. Joel Burleson Davis is the SVP of Worldwide Engineering Cyber at Improvada, where he's responsible for building, delivering, and evolving the suite of Improvada's cybersecurity products that include privilege access management, privacy monitoring, and identity governance solutions. Prior to Improvada, Joe held systems engineering, IT consulting, and instructor positions while serving as one of the founding members of the Linux Foundation Certification Committee, a global committee of key Linux subject matter experts. Joel, welcome to Barcode, man. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to it. Um, If you don't mind, talk to me a little bit about your background. You know, I'm curious to know how you got into the security field and what ultimately led you to where you are now. Okay, so it's a it's a it's a pretty wily, windy road that got me into security. Um, So. I started actually engineer like doing software engineering. I was 14 years old or something. and I was doing all sorts of different stuff, um, sort of cut my teeth running C drivers for Netgear, Nix, um, you know, for uh, for Novell uh, Netware, <laughs> which was pretty, which was pretty funny, um, you know, ten one hundred Nix writing C drivers for that, um, you know. But I was in a, I was, I sort of grew up in a small desert town in Arizona, um, you know, and so, you know, doing funny things like writing software drivers for Nix, installing Nix in, you know, uh, organizations, you know, like computers and stuff like that, and also running the wires and also setting up the servers and doing, you know, all the different things because there wasn't that sort of skills, uh, you know, in tiny desert towns in, in Arizona. So I, I sort of got a full breadth of the whole thing. Um, so you were sort of forced to, right? I was sort of forced to, yeah. Uh, and it was fun, right? Um, you know, sometimes crawling through rafters, running wire isn't super fun, but sometimes it's kind of fun. <laughs> sometimes it's hot when it's in the middle of the summer in Arizona and you're, you know, crawling through a ceiling space. Um, you know, so like that was a that was a pretty actually good education in just, you know, sort of technology and computing, you know, going from, you know, starting from running drivers for a kernel all the way through, you know, seeing end users, you know, connecting it to an end user system. Um, so that was that was pretty awesome. Um, and so I actually moved from there. Uh, I did, uh, you know, 
uh, moved off, did college, did a completely different thing in university. I got a degree in ethics and philosophy. Um, okay. Minored in Greek, uh, ancient Greek, which was pretty fun. Uh, and then moved to Australia with my wife um, and got a job there doing about the same thing that I was doing, you know, in my tiny desert town for an engineering company. What triggered that move to Australia? Uh, my wife was a, uh, she got a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship to study abroad and do her master's degree out there. So I got married young, married while I was in college, you know, in Australia, you know, as an immigrant at, you know, 21 years old or whatever. So it was pretty fun. Um, and so when the, when we got there, you know, one of the biggest industries in Australia uh, is mining, as maybe everybody knows. But the industrial sector also is, you know, a big target for, uh, you know, cybersecurity attacks. And it was, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. It sort of always has been because uh, it's pretty valuable if you can derail trains literally and things like that or the threat of doing so. Mm. Um, so I had gotten a uh, picked up a role, um, you know, in sort of full, you know, top down management of a, a small engineering company's infrastructure. Uh, and one of the biggest focuses there was, uh, you know, security. Uh, when me and my wife left Australia, I look, you know, actually still work for that company for uh, a number of years. I ended up being with them for almost six years. Oh, wow. Even living in the U.S. Uh, and then I did my master's degree. Um, and while doing my master's degree, I sort of studied the interconnection of, you know, like ethics and sociology and psychology with technology. And one of the things that I came out of there was um, I really, number one, liked technology. Um, number two, really liked education. So I joined uh, as a uh, and I'm on a committee of an education uh, committee for the Linux Foundation for certifications for Linux engineers. Um, and I also decided that I'm, my next gig needs to be building sort of a Linux-based security appliance. It's like that that was actually when I went on the job search. It's like, you know, my next thing in life, my sort of blue skies, I'm going to build a Linux-based security appliance because um, I think that's sort of the future. And when you say building, were you were you thinking of actually you know, starting something of your own at that point, or were you just, you just knew the space that you wanted to get into? I, I, I was sitting between the two very much. So, okay. uh, and then I found a little tiny company uh, 10 years ago called secure link in Austin, Texas. And that's basically what they were doing. Uh, and I've, I've been with them since. And so we've been building this privilege access management, third party security, uh, you know, Linux based high security appliance for, you know, the last 10 years. Uh, I did promise that it was a pretty funny, windy road there, but that, that's sort of how we got there. Um, and then, and then being with SecureLink, uh, you know, with them for 10 years, and we recently were acquired by Improvada, and we're continuing to sort of push our cybersecurity portfolio forward. That's awesome, man. So what was this scene like at SecureLink when you got there initially? Was it a super small company <laughs> or? It was a super small company. My, my joke is, that, you know, it's basically a closet with 10 sweaty dudes. Um, mm. <laughs> it was, but it was, it was very small. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think I was probably employee 15. Um, okay. We were, we were quite small. Um, it's much, much larger now, you know, hundreds of employees now, uh, which is pretty awesome. Uh, but it was, it was really fun. You know, it was, it was a cool place to be. Um, and the really nice thing about sort of building product at that level, um, especially with a team that small, is that you can do some pretty creative things. 
um, you know, pretty cutting edge things. Uh, you know, put conservative to conservatism to the wind and say, Hey, I'm going to build the, you know, the baddest thing I can. Yeah. Um, and so we built some really super cool security stuff. Um, and, and it was, you know, fun doing it the whole time. We also spend a lot of time at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to get to that. Oh yeah. Yeah. in good sort of legacy fashion. We still have three kegs on tap you know, at our oh, office. Nice. Uh, so yeah, so that, that's very much so sort of where we came from and where we're still at. So, okay. So you got in there. Um, it was really aligned with what you were seeking out. So that it seemed like it was a mm-hmm. great fit for you. Um, over time, over those past 10 years, what have you realized personally has been your driver to continue down the path of security? Is it, the product that you're working with? Is it the evolution of our culture in the industry? Is it the technical challenge that's associated? You know, I'm just curious what keeps your passion alive, um, uh, you know, for what you do day to day. So a lot of it has to do with sort of the mission of making sure that, you know, malicious actors can't ruin our days. You know, and that's a lot of what we do. Um, and the, the interesting thing over the last 10 years, especially building a product in security, is watching the evolution happen um, and realizing a few things. Uh, you know, number one, malicious actors are really smart, you know, and they're going to keep evolving just like we are. It's almost like an arms race. Uh, and so we need our smartest people doing that. And the other thing is, you know, while regulatory bodies and, you know, standards are really super important. Um, you know, I've talked about this before, like it, they set the floor, um, you know, but the malicious actors aren't, you know, trying to break through the floor. They're sort of trying to break through the ceiling. They're trying to, to crack the, you know, your best defenses. It makes it super easy, right? You see, you know, all these different breaches happen when someone guessed a password that was password and that was stupid. Um, you know, so that, that sort of, you know, it, setting the floor via standards will maybe protect you from something like that, but it doesn't really protect you from all the different threat vectors that are out there. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's part of sort of ingenuity and determination and hard work from, you know, super smart people like the engineers and folks that work for SecureLink or any other cybersecurity company really that say, Hey, like th- this is a little bit of an arms race and we're going to put our best minds forward and like, we're going to win this race. Yeah. Do you think we will win the race? Or do you think we'll always be a close second? I mean, I'm, I'm super hopeful. Um, so I'm super hopeful we win, uh, we will win. Um, you know, and then at a certain point, you know, hopefully with enough focus on it broad, because I, I think there's a few things, there's numbers on our, you know, on our side. Um, I think there's significantly more, like massively more people that would choose to do good versus not, yeah. you know, uh, so I think that the number of malicious actors out there is really small, right? So like we have numbers on our side, so we have resources on our side. Um, we just need, uh, you know, focus and care, you know, to, to gain momentum. So it becomes a, you know, it's, it's something we put resources towards. Um, and actually over the last 10 years, like you, we've seen that evolution. Uh, people are starting to care more and more and it's starting to be though, more and more impactful. Um, you know, the, the way that businesses have operated, right? Like sometimes I talked about B2B meshes where, you know, one company is really, you know, service company for 50 other companies. And one of those companies is also a service company for, you know, another 80 or hundred companies or whatever it is. So a breach somewhere is a breach everywhere. Um, and people are starting to feel that, right? The solar winds hack, you know, the target breach, 
uh, uh, Kaseya hack, right? There, there's a lot of these sort of supply chain third party uh, breaches that have happened that like really reveal that to folks. And they go, ah, and, like there's a number of people that woke up to, hey, the reality of business today is that we're all interdependent on each other. So we all need to, you know, pay attention and, you know, watch each other's backs for, you know, malicious activity. Barcode. Hi, is this Mr. Um, Danny Boy? Well, yes, it is. How can I help you, ma'am? Hi, this is Veronica. I'm calling from EasyPone, your security system provider. Oh, yes. Uh, what can I do for you? Well, we wanted to inform you that we need to run a critical update on your system, but we'll need to connect to your system remotely. But don't worry, it'll be seamless from your end. We just need your authorization to take care of that for you. Well, I don't know who you think I am, lady, but I'm not giving you my credentials over the phone. You must be confused. Sir, just relax. We already have access. Just need your approval. Okay, whatever. Don't want an unpatched security system, I guess. Do what you got to do. Thanks, Mr. Danny Boy. Have an excellent night, sir. Joel, sorry about that, man. My uh, my bartender here tends to get loud when he's on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, man, uh, I previously mentioned that Improvada specializes in third-party risk and critical asset management. So I'd like to discuss supply chain with you. And it's a threat that I believe has always existed, like you mentioned, to some degree. Um, yep. Although at what point in time would you say it has become more prevalent and an elevated attack vector for attackers to focus on? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different dynamics that have caused sort of the supply chain risk vector to explode. Um, one is that there's a number of traditional industries involved in, you know, supplying goods or services to other companies that hadn't modernized, right? They, they hadn't really joined the digital age. Um, you know, manufacturing is a really good example, right? There's a number of, you know, manufacturing companies that never really joined the digital age, right? Like they're manufacturing copper wire, like who cares, right? Like they may be still manufacturing copper wire with industrial machines that they've used for a while. They're not connected to the internet. You know, they, you know, they're doing whatever. And those are actually huge businesses, right? That, that may not have modernized, uh, but they're starting to, right? Most new, uh, you know, vendors for those industrial machines are probably expecting some layer level of connectivity. And so they're, you know, they are then connected, you know, some of the capabilities, um, you know, improvements around efficiency or support or anything like that is probably has some connectivity components to it. So there are whole industries, you know, manufacturing or farming or whatever it is that are sort of coming of age into the sort of digital revolution a little bit late. Um, but often when you see these, you know, industries, they're, they're entering, you know, the internet, uh, in 2022, not 1980, um, sort of thing. It's a whole different landscape, right? And so they're they're brand new at this. Um, you know, it's a lot scarier of a place than it has been almost at any per period of time. And you know, and so I think they're just, uh, you know, that attack. You know, attack surface blossomed, um, and there's not a lot of skill behind it. Um, or investment or thought about how to, you know, appropriately protect that. Um, yeah. You know, so that's one. So these these industries that are coming up, they're starting to join in, you know, sort of the digital revolution that we've seen. Uh, the second is what we talked about, the, the sort of B2B mesh um, scenario where lots of different companies are connected to some other company somehow. 
you with the adoption of like public cloud services, you know, and you know all sorts of different companies moving their you know offerings to you know public cloud versus on-prem uh, on-premises offerings, um, and then you know creating sort of you know meshes. It's like hey, you can get this service from this person, that service from that person. You know, you you can outsource your HR to this company, you can outsource your development to this company, you can outsource your financing to this company, and it, it makes good sense because those companies are really good at what they're doing. It's efficient, it's effective, uh, but suddenly you start having this scenario where there's all these different companies that are actually involved in your core business and have access to your critical assets. Uh, you know, whereas 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case, right? You'd have had a sort of castle moat set up. Um, you know, you'd have done your own HR that have been, a, you know, on-premises machine, probably running all your records. They would have never been connected to the internet, whatever it is. Um, so with the explosion of sort of that service and supplier, uh, you know, mesh across all industries, you also see sort of an explosion of the attack surface. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and when you say the delivery model, yeah. right? Um, when you talk about software supply chain, that's still a delivery model, right? Can you speak to, you know, what software supply chain is and why we hear about that so often? Yeah, software supply chain actually f- functions very similar to other supply chains as you would expect. You know, some for um, as much as maybe software folks would like to think, you know, we're not super special. Um, so there's going to be, you know, a capability that we want in a product that we may not be able to offer, right? That we may not have, but someone else is really, really, really good at it. And so we, you know, license out or white label their technology, embed it in ours, and it becomes part of the package that we offer to our customers. Totally, totally makes sense. Um, you know, just like for, you know, uh, you know, physical supply chain, something it's like, Hey, I might not make the, you know, hamburger meat, or I might not, might not make the buns, or I might, you know, not make the wire, but I make the wrapping around the wire, whatever it is, right? There's components of software, um, that often the best option for, you know, value to customers and speed to market is to, to leverage someone else's software. Um, and that, that's sort of a part of, uh, how we do things. So that's, you know, one, one area of it, which is the sort of private, you know, I'm going to embed your service offering in my service offering because you do it better than me or embed your software component in my component, uh, because you guys are brilliant and do it way better than we could ever have done or thought to do. The other is, you know, open source software, um, you know, open source software has, it, it basically won. I mean, there's, you would, I would, challenge someone to find a market leading product in the world today that doesn't use open source software. If you can find that, that would be awesome. Like email me, whatever. Um, I don't know of one. Um, and I don't know of a company that's been successful in the market over the last you know decade that hasn't leveraged uh, open source software. But if you think about that, you know, that's also part of your supply chain, right? You are, you know, there are these other developers, all different sorts of, you know, companies and communities and individual contributors, you know, they're building software components that you're then putting in your software offering, right? And so that becomes another sort of one of the software piece of the software supply chain, um, you know, is that those open source components. And I think, you know, that's been a brilliant change in the industry, um, you know, uh, sort of crowdsourcing, you know, innovation. It has worked out brilliantly for us all, but we do need to be mindful about the sort of security implications of that. Uh, you know, helping that community be more secure, right? And then, you know, doing our due diligence as we sort of ingest those uh, components or that functionality into our products that we offer customers. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And I think a lot of people overlook the fact that open source is an integral part of enterprise solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Even though it's on the back end, they may not see that. Right. Um, looking at software supply chain vulnerabilities over time, how have cyber attackers evolved in their methodology of successfully attacking supply chain? Yeah, there's been a few interesting ones um, that that sort of look like evolution to the tactic. My my first uh, you know position is no, there hasn't really been that much evolution, and I'll talk about that in a second. Why, um, you know, but there there has been a few like sort of clever attacks on you know libraries, like infecting libraries with malicious code, um, and somehow getting those into the public repositories where other software is going to pull them in. Um, you know, there's a number of ones with, you know, Python and PIP and Node.js um, and things like that. And being able to sort of infect uh, and look like legitimate software. This is also a little bit what they did with the Kaseya hack, um, you know, and I think the SolarWinds hack as well. Is they, they, they infiltrated legitimate software, embedded malicious code, um, somehow got through, you know, code signing and all the different other things that would have gotten through and then then you have a distribution mechanism, um, you know, from a customer base. Uh, and that's been, I mean, clever um, in the sense that they figured out ways around that. Um, that vector's existed for a long time, basically since it, since inception of consuming, you know, open source libraries. Um, you know, but in more recent times, that, that seems to be a, a go-to vector that malicious actors have, have leveraged. Um, but I'll go back to that original point about you know, the evolu- there hasn't been a significant evolution, I think, in the way um, that folks are attacking because it's still so easy for a lot of places. Uh, with the B2B meshes that have been, been created, you know, when they do reconnaissance, like as a malicious actor, you just got to figure out the relationship message, message, m- meshes uh, and then find the weakest link. Uh, you know, there was a Texas school hacking that happened uh, two years ago, and they found you know, eventually they found their way to a you know s- very small you know boutique service provider in like Plano. Um, you know, they, they had rough security and infiltrated there, gave them access to you know one of the largest school systems in America. Um, and so, you know, right now they can they can do that. They can just walk the sort of mesh, do reconnaissance, figure out where the weakest link is, get a foothold in, and figure out where they can spread from there. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of need for you know many of those malicious actors to really evolve their you know tactics uh, because old tactics are still working. You know, tactics like that. Um, and so, you know, if it's, if it works, you know, why fix it sort of thing? And I, I think that's some of the thinking behind a lot of it, um, you know, which is sad because, you know, things like that, you know, things that we've seen in a bunch of these, uh, breaches recently, like those are absolutely fixable. I mean, we've known about, you know, vectors around, you know, like password control or, uh, you know, permissions creep or, uh, you know, leaving open access to, um, parties that shouldn't have it. Like we've known that that's a really serious vector for breach for, I don't know, decades. Um, and we like, we've come up with solutions to solve that. It's whether or not people have put those in place. Um, so, so it's a fully avoidable breach, but it's still, I think pretty easy for uh, a lot of these malicious hacker hackers. Yeah. You led me right to my next question, which is, um, you know, the fact that you mentioned software supply chain deficiencies playing a role, a significant role in recent cyber attacks that have gone mainstream. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like 
it's still an underrated threat through the public eye? Yeah, I, I think that depends on how you define you know, the public view of it. Um, if you talk about like the security community at large, I don't think it looks any worse or different than it always has been because it's always been a little bit terrifying, right? You, you've always had to be mindful of it. There's been controls, um, you know, in software to secure things like that. And, you know, standards around supply chain, um, you know, vul- component scanning and vulnerability, scan- vulnerability scanning, um, that sort of existed in this larger security community for a long, long time. So I, I think they're fully aware, most everybody in security is fully aware of what that looks like. And when it happens, they go, oh, of course it did. Like, that's not super surprising. Right. Um, the larger public, um, you know, like outside of the security community, just like the general population, um, I think it scares them, but they're at the same time, you know, software for a lot of people feels like magic anyway. And so this is like, good magic and bad magic it's like you know the good wizard and the you know black magic sort of fighting each other and they're like not really sure what's happening and how it works um and they hope you know you know the good wizard wins sort of thing um and i I don't mean that to like be condescending to like the general population but it but i i understand the sentiment that you know often software feels like magic um you know and as a software engineer when people feel like your software is magic you you're like i nailed it right this is exactly what i was trying to build um you so there's a sense that we're you know ideally software is creating that 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 sense of magic Um, but but it's a double-edged sword right because you know once it's magic it's hard to understand um and so I think the general population, although may fundamentally understand what the supply software supply chain issues are, um, you know, it's a little hard to grasp. Yeah, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Um, excuse me, guys. Watch it. Beer distributor guy here coming through. Need to get to the back room. This case is heavy. Oh, hey, Derek. How are things going, man? Long time no see. Oh, living the dream, brother. Hey, listen, I know you're busy, so I'll be out of here in a few minutes. I'm just going to stock your fridge up with this brand new beer we got in called Zero Day IPA. Not sure why it's called that, but I'll tell you what, it's been a straight up hit for all our locations. Copy that. You see, I would normally suspect something is off with this beer named Zero Day IPA, especially here at a security bar. But since I trust you and we've been partners for years, man, load that shit up. You got it. Take care, buddy. Geez, man, this place is busy today. So again, my apologies, Joel. This doesn't normally happen. Yeah, no worries. No worries. <laughs> so I want to talk about um, a shift that happened within recent years, which is the COVID pandemic. Obviously, mm-hmm. we can't really talk supply chain issues without bringing this up. Um, it's definitely impacted supply chains and caused concerns and awareness around supply chain industry towards the, the security and the public eye, like we had mentioned before. Yep. And as we phase out of this pandemic, has there been a lingering impact to supply chain due to COVID? And what are some of the other factors that are currently causing supply chain issues? Um, That's more of a impact from external forces. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, in general, yeah, COVID's going to have a lasting impact on supply chains of all you know, sort of forms and versions, um, you know, actually even software supply chains, right? They're, you know, software is built, you know, companies that build software, you know, build it from, pe- you know, 
you know, people work from all over the world, right? Open source software does this thing. Most multinational companies do that, right? There are teams building software sort of everywhere. Uh, and that, that got fractured a lot, right? When lockdowns happened, um, you know, uh, if you may have outsourced in, and then war happens, right? The Ukraine conflict now, like if you would have sourced contractors out of Ukraine, which is a great development hub, right? Now you suddenly, your ability to, to build and generate software uh, is hampered until you figure something else out to do. Um, so I think disruptions like this in general, like especially at this scale, is going to have some sort of lasting impact. Um, you know, there's a lot of supply chains um, that are pretty hard to probably start up um, and get going. And then once they're going, if they ever stop, you know, it's going to take an enormous amount of effort to start them back up again. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of that in uh, you know, manufacturing particularly. I mean, there's still, uh, I don't know if you've, you've heard, but there were like, there were stories of, you know, foam waiting for nine months to show up and people couldn't get refrigerators and, you know, all sorts of different funny things that you would have never expected to happen. It's like, Hey, there's a happened to be a foam shortage. And so you can't get a refrigerator. It's like, Oh man, like what? Um, and you know, the, the larger public wouldn't have thought about that. Um, but but I think it does point to something that folks in the security industry have known for a long time, that disruption to a supply chain is really impactful, mm-hmm. right? Like, in the, it's been happening for a while. This isn't new. Um, you know, there's been supply chain attacks against, you know, all sorts of different industries for a long time. Uh, but I think it got a lot more noticeable during COVID because it was already, you know, there was already a large disruption, not caused by a security incident, you know, but caused by a pandemic or caused by a war. Um, but you have a pandemic and a war plus a security breach. And now you've like, it's insult to injury. You've really, you know, put salt on the wound sort of thing. Uh, and people really feel that and they see it and it becomes highly visible. Um, you know, but this, this sort of thing, this, you know, the, the dynamic that, impacting some level of supply chain somewhere inflicts actually quite a lot of pain. Uh, I mean, we've known that for some time. Um, it just has never been so visible because at this point there's multiple factors of, you know, impacting that. It's not just, you know, a malicious actor who breached the system that shut a supply t- chain down momentarily. It's, you know, COVID has changed the ability for workers to work, which have, you know, changed the ability for us to produce or ship Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a war has changed, you know, the way that, you know, raw, re- raw materials to produce the things that we need to produce or whatever it is, uh, you know, and then, you know, increased cyber warfare because of, you know, global politics that are, you know, the way they are now as well. You go, oh, you mix all three of those together uh, and it, it feels a little bit just like pain. Yeah. So Gartner just released their 2023 planning guide for security and the number one key finding stated that escalating geopolitical and supply chain uncertainty continue to drive strategic risk and the need to develop more efficient and effective security programs. Um, 100% agree. (laughs) Yeah, and and I was gonna say in addition to that, um, I think I read yesterday, a new SAP survey found that many senior business decision makers expect supply chain disruptions to run until late 2023, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And do you see the need to zero in on the supply chain issues? And do you feel like that is more vital moving into 2023? Or do you feel like that threat may level off? Um, so yeah, number one, I agree with them. And I think that absolutely we have to focus on that. 
that threat. Um, and one of the other you know, things that we've often talked about is you know, supply chain breaches or you know, some version of third-party relationship uh, leading to a breach like, has been the most common reason the breaches happen, again, for years and years. Um, and, you know, so, like, absolutely, we need to keep focusing on that, right? Like, that needs to be, we need to close that hole as much as we can and, you know, put resources towards it and investment and activities uh, to make sure that we close that because we know, statistically speaking, and from research and from experience that, yeah, that's that's how we're going to get breached. Um, and then breach causes disruption. And so, you know, if we haven't at large you know, as a, like, you know, an entire, you know, country or world, you know, really honed in and solved that problem, we can sort of guarantee breach. Um, that's probably going to happen. And then when breach happens, especially in sort of this interdependent, you know, business world that we live in it, with a weakened supply chain that will result in supply chain issues, right? Like, it, I mean, un- unless we focus on it and solve it like that, of course, it's a, it's almost an obvious conclusion that, you know, will these supply chain issues continue into next year? A hundred percent, you know, because we haven't really solved one of the primary reasons, you know, outside of pandemic and more, which is a really hard things to solve for as well, you know, but outside of those, you know, one of the most common reasons that you would have a supply chain disruption, we haven't solved for that yet, you know, by and large. And so until we do, yeah, it's going to keep happening. Um, and when you have a weakened supply chain, yeah, it, you're going to cause disruptions. Sorry about that, fellas. It's been that type of night. You guys understand, right? Y'all need anything? I'm good, but you might. Hey, Joel, optimally, what can be done here to help minimize the supply chain threat? Yeah, there's two things that you should really think about doing. Uh, number one, you probably need to figure out who all the third parties you are you're working with, right? Like if if you don't know who everybody is that's going to be coming in and out of your bar, uh, you, you have no idea how you're going to protect yourself, right? Like you have no idea what's actually going to happen. Um, you know, so if something does happen, um, hopefully it doesn't. Like knock on wood, uh, like this bar would. Um, you know, th- there's no way you would know. You know who did what to you know when and how and why and whatever. So like you, you need to inventory your vendors, right? You manage your inventory, you know, as it is for your you know beer, whatever you stock. But you like need to manage an inventory of the like interconnections you have with other businesses that are helping you run your business. Um, you know, once you do that, then you got to figure out what they need, what they actually really need. Right. Do you really need your, you know, beer distributor to be able to come into your bar without you there, you know, in the middle of the night? Right. Does he need, really need to deliver six cases of light beer at, you know, 3 a.m.? Like, no, they don't. So you like you need to be really mindful about, you know, what do these people really need? What do you really need from them? Uh, and make sure that you're super clear about that. Um, you know, between those two things, you, you go a long way. Right. It's like figuring out who the identities are, who the organizations you are that you're interacting with, why you're interacting with them and what they need. Uh, and then once you figure that out, control, you know, figure out what sort of controls you need to put in place uh, to make sure that they can't you know, do something nefarious. Good to know. Good to know. Hope they're taking notes, Joel. Hope so. <laughs> so, Joel, you've traveled the world, um, <laughs> Arizona, Australia and now you're in Austin, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I went Arizona to Texas to Australia to Oregon, back to Texas. Okay. Um, so we don't have to keep this next question scoped in in those areas, but because you have such a, a wide array of areas that you've 
spend time in, where would you say the best bar is that you've ever been to? So uh, a few, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a tough way to sort of answer. So I will answer, I will talk about sort of two bars. Um, first, just because it was fun. Uh, you know, when I was traveling to New Zealand once on a layover, uh, I had like a few hours in Auckland, didn't know what to do. And it was like 9am and, but like, it's not 9am, my body's time. And so I'm like walking around the pier and I see like a container that says, like something like open bar. I'm like, cool. Let, let me see what this is. I walk in and it's an ice bar, um, you know, and they like with the jackets, like, and they've carved stuff out of ice and for real was open, you know, and they're like, Hey, you want like a ice cold vodka shot? I'm like, absolutely. I do. Right. This is absolutely what I was after. Um, you know, I didn't know that this is what I needed, but it is super cold in here, which is great. Cause I always run hot and yeah, I needed to drink at 9am on a layover halfway across the world. And so, you know, that was, yeah, that was a super fun, um, you know, bar. So that, that's one of the sort of coolest bars I've ever been to. Um, the, you know, just for the sort of timing, um, of it. And the other, you know, one of my favorite bars that I've ever sort of been to is in New Orleans. I haven't been there in a while, but the Maple Leaf, just cause the, if you, if you know about it, they almost always have a funk band going. Um, and it's just a super cool place. Um, and so like if I can go somewhere and get a drink and there's just some awesome funk playing in the background, and, you know, in a crowd around me, like that's a, that's a great bar. Um, and so that I would say, you know, it's hard to choose between the two. It's like classically awesome bar. It's probably like the Maple Leaf in New Orleans or, you know, this, you know, whatever ice bar. I don't even know what it was the called. Ice container. And, you know, the, the ice container in New Zealand. Yeah. I'll see if I can get the name of that, that place. That's, that's pretty different. So I see the bartenders now, man, they're closing up. I think you got to them. I think they're realizing <laughs> that the problem here. So they're, yep. uh, they just called. Last call. Do you have time for one more? Totally. All right. If you decided to open a cybersecurity theme bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Oh, interesting. Um, so I, this is, um, and this is, I think going to be super obvious. I would absolutely open a cybersecurity theme bar called social engineering. Uh, you know, cause I love a good pun, um, sort of thing. So, I mean, you're showing up to a bar to see people, right. To be social. I love so it. social engineering seems like it just fits. Um, in my, I think my, my signature drink would just be a whiskey neat. Every single person that works in security just needs a shot of whiskey. <laughs> like that's the, I mean, it's, it's rough out there sometimes. It's like, it's like, so if you walk into my bar and you work in security, it's like, guess what? You're getting shot of whiskey. That's what you need. <laughs> you can call it the remedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Joel, thanks, man. I appreciate the time today. I had a great time speaking with you and uh, appreciate all the knowledge that you shared. Um, before we go, um, let us know where our listeners can find you and connect with you online. Well, I'm not uh, particularly on social media. And so you won't be able to find me on, you know, the, the standard social media channels, uh, but you can, you know, go to www.improvata.com and learn more about, you know, the company and the solutions we offer. Uh, Cause we can definitely solve a, a fair number of your cybersecurity issues. Sweet. Hey, take care, man. Um, be safe getting home and we'll hopefully catch up soon and then have a whiskey neat together. 
yeah, maybe we'll drink. Sounds great. It's good to chat with you. Yeah, you too, man. Take care. All right, cheers. As you know, Barcode is where security and IT professionals hang out after a long day. So get your message front and center to our fans by sponsoring an episode. Learn more at the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.